0: If you would bow with me in prayer. Lord, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you uh, that we can gather together here as your people. We thank you that uh, you are near to us, that, that you love us, that you know uh, what we're dealing with and what's happening in each person here in their lives, that you are intimately involved. And we thank you for these things. Uh, we pray this morning that as we think through uh, some of the difficult questions that we face, in this life and, and the hardships and the struggles and the things that we see and how you are at work in those things would you meet us in this place would your spirit lead and guide us in all truth would you reveal to us more fully how you do love us and how you are at work in these things even when we can't quite see it i pray this morning that you would teach us through your word that you would encourage us greatly that despite the things we see in our world and our own lives and the things that we deal with, that you would just make it abundantly clear to each one here that you are at work and that you do love us. We thank you uh, that we know this, that we can trust in this. We pray that you would speak directly to our hearts through the power of your spirit today. We pray all these things in Jesus name. Amen. I was thinking uh, in this series, we've been talking about the things that cause us to doubt, being merciful with those who doubt and the struggles that we have and the things we see in this life. And so I was thinking uh, just about some of those stories and some of the things I've seen uh, over the last couple of years, things that just make you kind of stop, uh, almost like like a gut check that you see in our world that are so hard sometimes to deal with. And I was thinking about over the last couple of years and I was thinking of a, a, a photo that I had seen last year, I think it was in the fall, uh, September, October, when I was looking back at it this morning um, uh, of a young boy in Aleppo in the middle of Syria. Maybe you saw this picture, but he was three years old. Uh, his home had been bombed to where it fell apart around him and a rescue worker pulled this little boy out. And the picture that was all over the papers and the things you saw was this little boy sitting in the back of an ambulance covered in debris and soot and all this thing with this look on his face. Uh, just stunned like he didn't like he didn't have a clue what was going on or what was happening around him. And It was kind of all over the place and it was so sad to see that picture of this little boy and it put a very uh, real face on war torn countries and what's happening around the world. Or or, or maybe you remember uh, the year before uh, when the picture was circulated of of the little boy who was three years old, whose body washed up on shore in in Turkey. And, And as the news came out, the story was that he and his family had loaded into a boat that was meant to hold four people with 11 other people to try to make it across to get away from ISIS. To get away from people who were indiscriminately killing and slaughtering anyone that disagreed with them. And this little boy and his mother and his brother all drowned. Trying to get to freedom. Trying to get away from the horrors of what's going on. And he saw that image of that little boy. He looked so much like my son Quinn's body. And you see those things and you go, what? What? In the world. As a Christian, it's easy to see those things and then go, God, what are you doing? Where are you in this? Like, like what's happening right now? And whether you believe in God or you don't believe in God or you struggle with that or those kind of things lead you to doubt and struggle with that. Each one of us sees those things. And I don't think it it, it even what you believe or how you see those those things deeply affect us. Whether it's those pictures or others, you can turn on the news and pick any story pretty much every day. And we see things like that that break your heart. And, And you see the evil and the suffering and the struggle in our world. And it's easy to begin to ask those questions. If you're an unbeliever Or you struggle with belief, you go, well, this is awful. And see, that's why I don't believe in God. There can't be a good God who allows that. Or if you're a Christian, you look at it and you go, okay, God, I'm trusting you, but I don't know what you're doing here. And it's easy to begin to ask those questions. And this becomes a big area of struggle. And so when we started in the series of, of talking about being merciful with those who doubt with the things that we see and the things that we struggle with, this is one of those biggest areas. Oftentimes the the question, as far as belief go, is framed like this. If God is good and he's all powerful, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? And so it's led many people to the, the assumption, well, then God doesn't exist. That can't be. Or he's not all powerful or he's not good or some combination of those things. And it leads us to doubt what the scriptures tell us about who God is and the way he responds to us. And so this morning, I want us to think on that. And I just submit to you that this is not just an area of a theological discussion or a philosophical discussion to think about those things. But it's something that affects us in a very real way in our life. I read this week that in America in particular, that we are ill-equipped to deal with suffering and these horrors that we see in our world more so than a lot of other places. And, and what the author was saying in the case he was making was for this reason, because we live in such affluence. We have so much. Uh, maybe you've seen some of the, the memes, the pictures with the little, the little phrase on it. First world problems. Right? The things that we consider suffering or hardships in our life. Like I had to sit in traffic for an hour in my air-conditioned car with my cell phone and my conveniences. And so we're so inundated with that, we're so surrounded by that, that it becomes very hard for us to deal with those things. In fact, our whole lives in a lot of ways in our country are built around the idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so happiness is insulating ourselves from suffering, Trying to make everything really good. And when that doesn't happen and when hard times comes, it's crushing to us in a lot of ways. And so this is not just a theological heady kind of conversation. This is something that touches down in our lives and it's hard and it's real and it's difficult. And so what we believe about this is important. And so I want us to consider that today. This idea of can a good God allow the evil and suffering that we see in the world? It is an area that sometimes causes us to doubt or struggle with our faith. And so the way I want us to look at it this way is this way. First, I want us just to think about how we all have an evil and suffering problem. And what I mean is it's real and it's in our world and we see it. But depending on whether you turn to faith or you turn to unbelief, we all have a problem here in dealing with it. And so I just want to lay those kind of on the table. We all have an evil and suffering problem and how we're going to deal with it. The second thing I want us to consider is why would God allow suffering and the things that we see in the world? If as we confess as believers that God is all powerful and he is good and he does care about us and this is his good creation, why does he allow things that we see in the world to go on like this? And then lastly, the third thing I want us to consider is why I think Christianity is unique to help us to deal with those things. And so let's just begin with this idea of we have an evil and suffering problem for all of us. Now, obviously, big picture, we could just say we have an evil and suffering problem in that we see it. We see it in our life. We see it globally. We see it on the news. We see it personally. We see it in relationships. We see it all around us. And so in a very real way, we all deal with it and see it at different times, whether it's the loss of loved ones or it's the stories on the news or the things that we hear or whatever it may be. We are inundated with it. And we all deal with that. But what I want us to think about is the way in which we struggle with it. I just stated the the issue. And I think it is true. And we need to admit that as Christians. How do we come to if God is all good and powerful in every way? Why does this go on? That is a question that we wrestle with. And so when people say that, it's okay to say, yeah, sometimes I wonder. Uh, the Psalms is filled with this kind of language. Where are you, God, and what are you doing? Why is it like this? And so wrestling with God and those things, we need to be open and honest with that is true, that we do wrestle with those things. But I also want us to think of when we begin to reject God because of that, it presents a whole host of new problems. You know, last week we talked about the idea of has science and Christianity, are they at odds And I kind of presented to you how how many will see the world today. And it's a naturalistic worldview. I won't replay all of that. You can go back and listen to the sermon last week if you missed that. But naturalistic worldview is believing that what we see and can touch and can feel is all there is in the world. That there was. Nothing. And then there was something in an instant and everything came out of that and it evolved over a long, long period of time. But there's no cause to the beginning. And we're all here and it's random chance. And many would hold to that belief today. And as I said last week, and I'll say again, that is a belief. It takes a lot of faith to believe that. To believe that there is no cause and there's none of that. But oftentimes what happens is people see the evil and suffering in the world and they turn to that as an answer. Well, God can't exist. And here is proof of why he can't exist. So now I'm going to embrace that he doesn't exist in this. And I'm going to go to a naturalistic worldview. But there's an issue that comes with that that becomes a problem real quickly. If that theory of an all-encompassing theory of evolution and over slow changes over billions of years is how we got here. You have a key component to that known as survival of the fittest. If you ever took biology class in high school or, or middle school or whenever that was, they first tell you the idea that things that adapt and are stronger and faster and more adaptable survive. And the weak things... Get killed or eaten by the stronger, faster things, and so that's where they term that "survival of the fittest." And we see that in nature, and we do see those things. That's true in a lot of ways. And when you watch animals, right, the predator grabs the slower one; they're the one that gets eaten. That's the picture that happens. But here's what I want you to think about: when you begin to think that way and put it in those those uh, terms. And you say, I don't believe in God because of evil and suffering, but yet you embrace a naturalistic worldview that we have gotten here by survival of the fittest. The question then comes, why are you upset at evil and suffering in the world? You can turn to that, but now you have no good reason to be upset for the things you see in the world. I'm going to say something that sounds very, very harsh, and I don't mean it to be that way. But I want you to take those uh, beliefs to their end. If you believe in survival of the fittest, the poor little boy Alan Curdy that's body washed up on the shore in Turkey, well, he was slower and not as fast, and that's part of survival of the fittest. Now that makes you cringe when I even say that. You go, whoa, uh-huh, not embracing that Well, it's okay because that's the natural. But that's where it takes you if you're going to step into that belief. That is part of the world. That's completely natural to our world. The strong eat the weak. Some people eliminate themselves. That's what happens. That's part of it. But I think the truth is if we're honest, none of us is okay with that. None of us is okay with the idea of just saying, ah, that's part of it. In fact, this was a huge part of what led C.S. Lewis to become a Christian. If you know anything about C.S. Lewis, he became one of the great Christian apologists. He was a brilliant mind, an incredible writer. He wrote a lot of uh, incredible fiction, Chronicles of Narnia. But he also wrote a lot of uh, incredible theological works and thinking through a lot of these things. But if you know anything about C.S. Lewis... When he was 18 years old, he went off to war to fight in World War I. And he came back after that time at what he had seen and what he experienced and the way he dealt with it is God can't exist. An all-powerful, good God can't exist in a world where these kind of things are happening. And he lived that way. He lived as an atheist for many years. But what Lewis came to is that very idea that if I'm going to embrace that God doesn't exist, then why am I upset at the evil and suffering I see in the world? And so there's actually a quote in your bulletin this morning from from Lewis saying that very thing. He says, my argument against God was the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, if I had given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own, but if I did that, then the argument against God collapsed for the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Consequently, atheism turns out to be far too simple. And so what he says is, if you're going to embrace the evil and suffering and hardships that we see in the world is because there is no God, then suddenly you don't have a reason to be angry or upset anymore, because that's just part of the way the world is. And so I just want to start there with wherever you turn in this, you still have an issue of dealing with why do we have this reaction and this feeling and this, this uh, sense of, of dread when we see these things. So, if we believe as Christians that God is good and he is all-powerful, and he is at work in these things, then why is there evil and suffering? And so I want us just to consider the first question of why would God even allow it to exist? If he is the creator and sustainer of all things, then why would he even allow evil to come into existence? And, And I think the answer when we begin to look in the scriptures and we begin to search and see what it tells us is that God created man in his image After his likeness, conscious beings that can have relationships with one another who can make real choices and have real consequences. And that's part of who we are. And so that story is told to us in the very beginning of the Bible with Adam and Eve. They're placed into the garden. And God says, you can eat of everything except for this one tree here. And so the question goes, well, why in the world did God put the tree there? You ever wonder that? (laughs) Why don't you just leave that part out and everything would have been great? Because then we wouldn't have been conscious beings with real choices, with real consequences. And so the tree there, sometimes people will say oh, it's an apple and they'll go, no, no, that can't be right. It's a fig. And we'll start to argue about all the different ways of what the tree is. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> I think there was a real tree and there was something on there. But what it was representing is you can either choose to trust God or you can choose not to trust God. And so when God created this in this way and gave us the ability to make choices, real choices, he left open the possibility that evil could enter into this creation. He allowed the possibility of it. He didn't choose evil. He didn't force it on us. He didn't give it to us in this way. But he says, I'm going to give you real choices. And with those come real consequences. If you know the story, we quickly chose. We got this, God. We don't need you to tell us what to do, which is kind of still the problem today. I'm good. I got it. I don't need you. I can do this on my own. And sin enters the world. And so when we begin to ask, well, why is it even there? God gives us real choices. This free moral beings that can make real choices with real consequences. He gives us that freedom. And so I always find it interesting when you look at our world today and people shake their fists and they get angry at the evil and suffering at the God. But at the the same time, the number one thing that we hold so dear in our country is our freedom. You can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me what to do. I can do what I want, but yet there's so much evil and suffering. Why? Because we make choices with real consequences. I'm always struck by when people talk about the things that we see in our world. If we could eradicate extreme poverty, which, by the way, as believers, we should be working towards that. We should be seeking to answer those things of loving our neighbor as ourselves and caring for the poorest of the poor and those in need. But we say things like we should eradicate extreme poverty and now I'm going to go spend nine hundred dollars on a cell phone. And then we say, God, why is there extreme poverty and evil and suffering in the world? We make real choices with real consequences every day. And we see those all around us. And yet we want to say, God, why is it like that? And so part of the answer in Scripture is that God does give us those choices. That he does make real the possibility of evil coming into that. And we've chosen that. We've chosen to put ourselves first instead of loving God and loving our neighbor as ourself the way God calls us to. We go, no, I'm going to just be all for me. And we see that everywhere and all around us. But that still doesn't account for why does God allow the things that we see? If God is all powerful and he's good, then why does a tsunami wipe out 200,000 people? Why does he allow those things to happen? The Bible tells us that as we made those choices, sin spread into everything. Almost like a virus into creation itself and all things, and we see all this stuff coming from that. But it still uh, kind of begs the question of well, what about why wouldn't God just stop the storm? Like he gives us free choice and consequences and so people can kill one another and do those things. But what about like natural disasters? Why doesn't God stop those things? And I want you to think about the story of Job for just a second. When we come to that question of these great big things and the way we see them and how they work, why doesn't he stop those things? If you know the story of Job at all, it's in the Old Testament and it's all about suffering. Pretty much the entire book. If you've heard the story of Job, Job loses everything essentially in a day. His stuff his wealth, his house. And then at the very end of that day, the last thing is the servant runs up to him and he says, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking in the oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead and I alone have escaped to tell you. Job gets all that information in 30 minutes, maybe an hour, one after another, you've lost your... Wealth, your house, your things, oh by the way, all your children are now dead. And the rest of the book of Job is dealing with why in the world is this going on. In fact, Job says it would have been better off that I was never born. And so Job first deals with it with the idea of would have been better off if I was never born, so nothing good could possibly come from this, and I don't know why this is happening. But yet Job was a godly man, he says, But I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to praise you, which is such a strange thing, he says. But then his friends come along and they basically teach karma. You're in trouble because of something you did. Just admit it, man. Right? God's punishing you for something you did and you act like you're really good, but just admit it. Come on. Which, does it always work that way? Do the good, moral, upright people always have a nice, easy, good life and the people who are bad and evil always have hardships? If you believe that, I'd like you to meet Jesus. The only perfect, sinless person in the history of the world and he was brutally murdered. No, it doesn't always work that way, which adds a whole other layer to all of this. Well, what are you doing, God? And so you read through the book of Job and they wrestle with these things and kind of back and forth and you get through this. And you get to the end of Job and Dennis read part of it this morning. from Chapter 40 and chapter 42, you can actually go back and start at 38. Finally, God answers Job. And he doesn't tell him why. He does speak and he does answer, but he doesn't tell him all the reasons why. But what he says is, "Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Can you do what I can do? Are you all powerful like I am?" And he asks Job all these questions, and he just lays them on him. And it gets to the very end, and you heard when Dennis read it. Job says, "And I stop talking. I don't know." He silences Job in the face of an almighty, sovereign God. And so here's where I'm going with this. I'm going to go, well, what in the world is going on? If you have a God big enough to be angry at, you have a God big enough to trust that maybe He's working in ways that you can't understand. And we don't like that answer a lot of times. Well, wait a second. I want to know right now what you're doing. And God says, it doesn't work that way. You trust me in the midst of this. And that's where he comes to with Job. But what you see in God's graciousness is the fact that he answered Job at all. He didn't have to answer him. But he does. And he's good and he steps in and he talks to Job and he says to him, you have a God big enough to be angry at. You have a God big enough to trust. So trust me in this. Now that's still hard for us. That doesn't answer all of us. Still so go, oh, okay. But as you continue to walk through scripture and you begin to think about this, yes, God's big enough. And so the possibility that maybe he's working in ways that you can't see. And as you begin to unfold the story of the way God's working, what you see is he is working. And you see him working in people's lives all the way through the Bible, refining them and humbling them and shaping them. Most importantly, I'd say stripping away The false belief that we hold that we're self-reliant. And God uses those times to mold us and to work through us and in us. I know this is a great big, huge thing to take on. Why does God allow evil and suffering? And so there's a lot of things we could say about how he does that and what he's doing. And I just point you to about two and a half years ago, we spent eight weeks on this idea. And so if you hear some of these things and you go, but, but what about this? Would you go back? Those, those are on the website. You can download those. I think it starts around October of 14. But eight weeks we did talking about those things. What God's doing and that He is working in those. And, and when we look at Scripture, we see a consistent witness of this. Think about the life of Joseph. An arrogant, swindler, Obnoxious, His brothers, they sell him into slavery and God uses all these incredibly hard circumstances to change him. Think about what God does in Job's life. Or in Paul's life. The hardships and the things that God brings into Saul, who later becomes Paul, that God uses in a magnificent way. And through those hardships, he refines Paul and he uses them. Or Peter, the incredible dumb things that Peter says and does and goes about, but yet God loves him and molds him and shapes him and uses those things. And we see that all the way through Scripture. That oftentimes God uses some of the most difficult circumstances in our lives to draw us closer to him. To shape us and to mold us. I've said this to a few people and it's hard to even explain sometimes, but one of the sweetest times in my life were the six months after my brother died. I can't even explain that in some ways. Fifteen months apart, my best friend, my whole life, and he dies in a car wreck. And I remember sitting on my front porch and reading Job and saying, God, you are too wonderful for me to even fathom And it doesn't even make sense. But God shows up in a real way in those moments, and He strips away all the things that you thought you knew and you had together, and He draws you closer. And He does that. And I see the opposite of true in my life when everything's great and I think I got it all going together and it's all perfect, how quick I am to forget Him. Yeah, I got this. But then God, in his graciousness, uses those times to draw us closer to him. To do a work in our life. To kind of tune our hearts and our minds to actually hear and listen to him in the midst of the most difficult times. And so as I say that to you you and say, God's big enough to be angry at. He's big enough to trust. Or I can say he he refines you and he shapes you in those things. And and as a good Christian, you can go, yeah, okay. Intellectually, you go, yes, yeah, God's sovereign and he's big enough, then he could be working in ways I don't understand. Or or yeah, I believe that you feel that and that worked out in your life in the hard times. And in, in, in tragedy, God worked in your life. And yes, I see that in the Bible, but right now things are really hard and i don't see any good reason i mean if if we're honest there's at least a couple people here that are going yeah i get that intellectually i get that in my head but not my heart cuz it's hard and it's hard right now and this is difficult and it's not easy And, yeah, there might be answers coming, but it sure doesn't feel like it in this moment. So what do we do with that? It's not just an intellectual exercise. Well, here's your answer and this is what you should believe. And now it fixes everything. It's still hard. So what do we do in those moments when it's really, really difficult? Do we turn and say, well, God must not exist? All these feelings I have are just illusions and they're not even real. And it's just a cold, lifeless, hard place, and we're all gonna burn out and we're all gonna be gone and nobody will remember this anyway. Is it very comforting? Or does Christianity give us some ways to deal with our suffering in the midst of it that no other worldview does? And I think it does. If you turn with me to Matthew twenty six. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 36. I think Christianity does give us way more. And this is where it diverges from any other worldview, any other religion, any other way of thinking of evil and suffering in the world. Matthew 26 is a few hours before Jesus will go to the cross. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples they've just celebrated the lord's supper the passover meal where he institutes the lord's supper he teaches them about caring for one another and washing each other's feet and serving one another and all these things and then he says okay let's go and they walk out into the garden and this is what happens then jesus went with them to a place called gethsemane and he said to his disciples sit here while i go over there to pray And taking him with Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He came back and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter. So you could not watch with me one hour, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And then he goes back. And again, a second time he went away and prayed, my father, if it cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping. And then he tells them to let's go. But what you see in that, and it's recorded in the Gospels for us, this picture of Jesus in agony, praying. And what he's praying and what he's asking is, Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me, this would be a great time to let me know. And what we know from Scripture and when we put together and we begin to look at what it tells us later in the New Testament as it explains us, and what we see in the Old Testament is the cup that Jesus is agonizing over is the cup of God's wrath. That he would willfully take on himself to pay for the sins of all those that would put their faith in him. He becomes our sin on the tree. On the cross. And in doing so, God pours out his wrath on Jesus. So that instead of us taking God's wrath, we can have Christ's righteousness and be saved from the evil and the horrific things of this world. But here's the thing I want you to see. In that moment, Jesus becomes the sin of the world. And so we go, well, what is God doing right now in this moment? And what we can say is sometimes we don't know, but what we cannot say is he doesn't care. He said, I will come and I will take your mess and I will deal with it and I will bear the wrath so that you can have perfect Restoration. And so what he says in the midst of that is the one thing that you cannot say is that God doesn't care. And so when we look to Jesus and what he's done and he says, trust me. I am with you always. That is not the flippant response of a God who is far off, that is not entered into our suffering. That's a God that knows everything you are dealing with completely and totally because he became those things for you. So you can go, this doesn't make any sense. And he can look at you and say, I know. I know exactly what you're going through. Trust me in that. And then he can turn and say, I have defeated sin and death and you don't see it right now, but I am going to make all things right. It is the glorious good news of the gospel and no other world. You can even begin to touch that. We worship a God who's not far off. who's not detached, who doesn't care. We worship a God who humbled himself and came in and took all those things on himself that we could be restored to him. That doesn't mean right now, whatever you're going through, it's easy. Oh, great. It's all taken away now. No, but what it does mean is that you have a great high priest that knows everything you are dealing with. And he says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made full in your weakness. You put it on me and I will take care of you in this. So we all have an evil and suffering problem. But thanks be to God, we have an answer for it in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of what you've done for us the way you have revealed yourself to us. That you love us enough to humble yourself and come into this life and to walk in these ways, to meet us in the midst of it, to become sin on our behalf, that we can become the righteousness of God in what you've done. And we thank you for that. I pray specifically for those that sit here today that are struggling with those very things. That are in the midst of of an issue in their life that they're just confessing I don't know how this works right now and I don't see it I pray that you would give them your grace in a very real way in a fuller way than they've ever experienced it before that your spirit would move in our lives and draw us closer to you trusting you in all things we thank you that you love us that you've come to us in this way that we can trust in that, that the resurrection is proof that you not only love us and took our sins, but that you have defeated evil and death and sin forever. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.